Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 20th, 2019, and my guest is obstetrician, gynecologist, author, and blogger, Amy Tutor. Her blog is The Skeptical OB, and her book, which is the subject of today's conversation, is Pushback, Guilt in the Age of Natural Parenting. Amy, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us uh, about your background as uh, an observer of, of all these issues related to uh, childbirth and parenting. So I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, as you mentioned. I'm also the mother of four children, now all adults. So I had my children back in the 80s and 90s, but even then, the pressure on women to have a natural childbirth, to breastfeed, and to parent in certain ways was uh, getting started. But now it is much worse, and I really feel very badly for a lot of young women who are struggling with the pressure, mostly because it's unnecessary. So many of the things that people are upset about, uh, for example, when I used to be practicing, I would visit a woman the day after her baby was born, and she would be um, a very very upset about the fact that she had an epidural, which she hadn't planned on, or had a C-section that she hadn't planned on. And no matter how much I tried to point out that the um, the uh, the reason we were doing this was because she should have a healthy baby and she should be healthy herself, she would be inconsolable. And I began to wonder why it is that new mothers feel that way and who is making them feel that way, and what can we do to help them? I want to talk about different uh, – we're going to go through the different aspects of, of what you call natural parenting, uh, the uh, pressure to not have a C-section, to have a vaginal birth, uh, the pressure to breastfeed, the uh, and then the, the issue of what, what you write about is attachment parenting and, and how close the child, the infant, should be to the parent at at all times versus right. independence. So I want to go through those one by one. Let, let's start with uh, the C-section. There is a large, um, there has been an increase in C-sections in the United States. And the rate, I think in your book, you quote a number of roughly a third of all, all right. births or, or C-section births. And as a, you know, we had four children, and that's not the right pronoun. Uh, my wife <laughs> gave birth to four children, uh, but I was a participant in, of course, many ways. And one of the ways was that we, neither of us wanted a C-section and felt there was pressure uh, from parents that we had talked to from from their their doctors, sometimes from the nurses, that that a, um, a C-section was often just an easy way to, to, to deal with it, and that mothers who wanted to try longer and to go through labor were often um, uh, not listened to in, in, in the communities that we were in at the time. So give us your thoughts on that. Talk about the, the rate of, of cesarean section and uh, why you think that, that we should be more open to 
C-sections uh, than maybe the, than we are culturally. So before we get into um, the attitude towards C-section, I feel like I need to say that when I was practicing, I had a 16% C-section rate, which is really uh, quite low, although I acknowledge that where I'm practicing now, it would probably be higher because of the changes in the rules about vaginal birth after C-section. When you say rules, do you mean legal strict restrictions or hospital-imposed rules or what? Well, they're um, legal and insurance restrictions, but they come about because we knew right from the very beginning that vaginal birth after C-section had a increased risk compared to um, vaginal birth in women who hadn't had a previous C-section. And that risk includes the rupture of the uterus and the potential death of the baby and even the death of the mother. And although women signed consent forms saying that they understood that that could happen, when it began to happen, these women sued and they won. They sued claiming that they, although they had been told that it could happen, they didn't really understand that it could happen. And insurance companies paid out a lot of money. And as a result, they directed the doctors and the hospitals that they, um, that they covered to have certain restrictions on vaginal birth after cesarean. And the American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists codified some of these restrictions, and they included the ability to perform a C-section within 30 minutes, which meant that the doctors involved, like the obstetrician and the anesthesiologist, had to be in the hospital at the time that the woman was in labor. And a lot of community and rural hospitals don't have an anesthesiologist in the hospital 24 hours a day. And so those hospitals stopped doing um, vaginal birth attempts after C-section because they couldn't meet the standards. So that's one of the reasons that C-section rates are higher for second and third births, that et cetera, that after an original C-section, now those are increasingly C-section also is what you're saying. Correct. That's right. But I think it's important to go back a little to the history of the natural childbirth movement to really situate the whole C-section issue within the movement itself. Now, most people don't realize that the natural childbirth movement um, was created in the 30s and 40s by Grantly Dick Reed, who was a, a British obstetrician. He was also a eugenicist. And he was preoccupied, as were many eugenicists in the 30s, with the problem of what he called white uh, race suicide. He bemoaned the fact that uh, white women of the so-called better classes were having fewer children, while women of color of the lower classes were having more children. And he felt that upper class white people would be drowned in a sea of their what he felt were their inferiors and he He was a racist he's a terrible racist he was a racist and he was a misogynist (laughs) how does that how does that tie into the natural birth thing though the natural parenting well so he thought that the reason that women were not of women of the better classes were not having enough children was that they were first of all too educated they were what he 
referred to as over-civilized, and also that they were afraid of the pain. And to fix that fear of the pain, he told them it was all in their head. He said that primitive women gave birth easily, had no complications, and had no pain. So to the extent that women had uh, pain or complications, it was because they were over-educated and over-civilized. And this is, this is something you call in the book, which I a phrase I, I like quite a bit, um, paleo-fantasy, the romanticization of uh, – pre-human, of prehistory and, and our primitive uh, ancestry. Right, but he did it with a purpose. It wasn't that he didn't understand what childbirth had been like in nature. He wanted women to feel bad if they didn't ha- give birth to children, a lot of them, <laughs> and easily. And um, that the movement in the UK crossed the uh, to the United States in the 1950s where it got a somewhat different spin. And that was because medicine had become very paternalistic, both toward uh, women and toward men. But women um, rebelled first. And one of the things that they were unhappy about is that the only anesthesia available was anesthesia that put you to sleep. And they wanted to be awake for the birth, and they were willing to accept the pain. Uh, And that's fine, you know, if that's what women wanted. And the natural childbirth movement, as it crossed uh, to the United States, um, it was responsible for a lot of important and valuable changes. Natural childbirth advocates asked, why can't husbands and partners be in the delivery room? And doctors at first responded, well, they can't. And women said, well, why not? And doctors said, well, actually, we don't know. We always did it that way, but we don't know why we did it that way. We'll change. And so a lot of things changed um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Also, what changed is the development of epidural anesthesia and the improvement of safety of cesarean sections. It's important for people to understand that up until the 1930s, C-sections were extremely dangerous. They were considered a bad thing. So a lot of women would have vaginal births and their babies would die. After um, anesthesia became better, and then definitely after introduction of spinal and epidural anesthesia, C-sections became safe and anesthesia became safe. So there was no longer a medical reason to avoid C-sections, and not surprisingly, the C-section rate rose because all the doctors wanted to save all the babies they possibly could. But, but it does it does pose uh, impose a very a much different um, postpartum experience, after birth experience for the the women involved, right? In terms of recovery and ability to. To well, be with the child. It, it, it's, um, Let's you talk know, about that. Again, it all depends on how you frame it. It's certainly a much better recovery than if your baby dies. Yep. And that was the choice. Now, what also happened during that time period was the reemergence of midwifery as a profession. And mid, there have always been midwives, and they have always struggled to make birth safer. But the 
reemergence of midwives had more to do with differentiating themselves from obstetricians. And so midwives began to promote what they could do as good and natural and demonize what doctors could do as bad and harmful. And um, vaginal birth is a great thing, but it's not the right thing for everyone. There's actually a high rate of infant mortality and maternal mortality in C-sections. In fact, Atul Gawande actually wrote about this. Um, C-sections have saved more lives than almost any other surgical procedure. They've been an um, amazing success. Are there too many? Yes, there are potentially too many. But of course, the problems with having too few are much bigger than the problems with having too many. And, you know, you you don't want to have a C-section. It's surgery. That's fine. You don't want to have a C-section. But you um, shouldn't feel bad if you do have a C-section. I mean, that's what's really changed. Not so much... <laughs> Not so much that women are disappointed, but they feel they've done something wrong and they haven't done anything wrong. And they're told that they've missed out on a certain kind of experience and they haven't really missed out. Um, in the entire history of human existence, no woman said what I really want is to have an agonizing, painful, near-death experience when I have a baby. And it it's puts my child at risk uh, that, on top no, of that it. That definitely puts my child at risk. But what's happened, and it's kind of like what's happened with vaccines, is that um, neonatal mortality and maternal mortality are now, fortunately, very rare. And so people have gotten the wrong idea. They think childbirth is inherently safe. It's not inherently safe. Obstetrics has made it safe. C-sections have made it safe. Anesthesia has made it safe. So you can't really uh, say what we want to do is go back to unhindered childbirth because it was awesome when there was unhindered childbirth. No, it was horrific when there was unhindered childbirth. And what we're looking for now is a balance. Are we at the right place? I don't think we're at the right place. But we need practical solutions, not demonizing C-sections and definitely not demonizing women who have C-sections. Let me ask a question of you as a practitioner, and it's not an easy question to answer, but certainly there are births you attended where a C-section was called for unequivocally, unequivocally to save the life of the child or the mother. There certainly were times when a C-section was an, a risk that was being endured to gain something that was a very remote, the, the, uh, that safety. So, and then there's the gray areas, the in-between cases where it's, it's hard to know whether a C-section is the definitive response to the risk that the mother and child are facing. As a practitioner, how many times or how often or how agonizing was that middle situation where it wasn't clear what the right thing to do is? I ask this because, you know, our first hour, <clears throat> again, the wrong pronoun, my, my wife's first <laughs> delivery uh, of our daughter, our, our uh, doctor was, was, it was in the middle of the night. He hadn't arrived yet. There was a monitor of the baby's heart rate of my daughter's heart rate. It was 
going to very low levels when uh, contractions were occurring. And the attending, I think, nurse, or it was either an attending nurse or an attending, a very young, inexperienced uh, doctor said, I think we need a C-section, sign these forms. And we, like you point out, we were emotionally, culturally against a C-section, whether that was right or wrong. And, but there was a lot of pressure on us and we were not sure what to do. And very shortly after, the doctor came and said, oh, that's just the contraction. Don't worry about that. And my wife had a very painful but uh, a vaginal birth that where mother and daughter were fine. That kind of moment where it's not clear what the right thing to do is, is that common? Or in other words, how much leeway is there in, in trying to decide? I mean, I assume as an economist that, you know, it's not usually, it's usually not open and shut. It's usually, to use a bad metaphor, uh, it's hard to know what the right thing to do is at any one time. And the, I think the legal system encourages doctors toward I worry that the legal system encourages doctors toward C-section. So what are your thoughts? Well, the real issue is that we have a technical problem. We know that childbirth can be dangerous for babies because every time the uterus contracts, the baby has to figuratively hold its breath. It cuts off the blood flow to the baby. That's not really a problem if Um, the placenta is functioning well. But you might imagine that in a baby that isn't getting enough oxygen through the placenta between contractions, each contraction, it causes the baby to hold its breath and it doesn't have enough, for lack of a better term, enough breath to hold. It begins to suffer oxygen deprivation. We could eliminate a significant proportion of unnecessary C-sections if we could measure the baby's oxygen content. But the baby is inaccessible to us. We really can't measure the baby's oxygen content. All we can do is listen to the baby's heartbeat. Now, imagine if you had a problem, a medical problem, and you went to your doctor, and the only thing your doctor could do was listen to your heartbeat. Obviously, if your heartbeat was really, really slow, your doctor would know that you were in terrible trouble. And if your heartbeat was normal, your doctor would be relatively safe in assuming that you were okay. But if it were somewhere in the middle and there was nothing else the doctor could do to figure it out, both you and the doctor would be in a very difficult situation. Yep. And that's the situation that we're in now where we know some babies will be harmed by labor. We know what the some of the signs are, but we don't know the thing we really want to know, which is, is the baby getting enough oxygen? So we have this very imperfect test to measure the baby's heart rate. And the thing about that test is it has a really high false positive rate. In other words, it will show distress even when the baby is not in distress. But it also has a really low false negative rate. So if it shows that the baby is fine, the baby is definitely fine. So then the question becomes, if it suggests that the baby is in trouble, what should you do if you can't actually figure it out? 
And that is a really a value judgment. And it depends on the patient's values and the doctor's experience. An experienced physician might be willing to wait and see what happens, reasoning that if things are going badly, they'll get worse and they can intervene then. But um, a, a lot of parents don't want to wait and see. They don't want to risk their baby's health or their baby's brain function. And they're... Um, when they're told that the baby might be at risk, they say, you know what, I'd rather have a healthy baby. I'd rather have a baby who's completely intellectually intact. And therefore, the number of C-sections has risen because when you can't be sure, a lot of people feel it's better to overtreat because the consequences of undertreating are so devastating. So, so your point, which I think is easily missed, you just sort of alluded to it briefly a few minutes ago, which I think is worth emphasizing, is that until maybe uh, certainly the begin, it started at the beginning of the 20th century, but certainly before the 20th century, childbirth was, was a terrible cause of death of not just infant mortality of children, babies born that didn't survive or died before delivery but of maternal mortality. And that transformation is one of the great achievements of, of human history. It's just under Absolutely. underappreciated. And g- give us some feel for what the magnitude used to be. And again, in s- semi-modern times, not ancient times. Well, in terms of maternal mortality, which is still higher than we would like it, but much, much lower than it was, if maternal mortality were now at the same rate that it was, say, in 1900, approximately 45,000 women would die each year in childbirth, and that's equivalent to the number of women who die each year of breast cancer. And we all recognize breast cancer as a terrible scourge. So, How many women die now of uh, in maternal mortality? Of- Child in childbirth. In the United States, um, between seven and eight hundred women a year, which is which is more than we would Wish like. It were lower, yeah. But that's a far cry from forty-five thousand. I should just mention that there's been a recent uh, uptick, but not not small. Uptick's not the right word. A spike in in maternal mortality in the United States, and uh, that we could spend the whole rest of the time on that because it's a complicated. To me, looking at it from the outside, it seems to me it's a change in how it's been measured um, and, and the way that states report maternal mortality. I don't think, I don't think the United States has become a, danger, a more dangerous place for women to give birth. Uh, and one of the challenges of measuring maternal mortality is that uh, a woman who dies six months after childbirth can be classified as, as an example of maternal mortality. Um, because of a coroner's decision, and that the way that was uh, kept track of has changed over time. So it's it's quite complicated. Right. I just want to mention that for listeners, it's the kind of issue that we um, like to talk about here. How data can be quite about a lot more complicated than it appears. The other issue is that the United States has a very high rate of uh, deliveries of women forty and forty five and older, which are more dangerous. Yes, although that seems to be less of a issue. It's certainly a problem, but I think the important thing is to look at what women are dying of. So the um, 
The shape of the problem has changed dramatically. In 1900, women were dying primarily of hemorrhage, of infection, and of preeclampsia. In 2019, women are dying primarily of cardiovascular disease, including congenital heart disease, and pre-existing chronic conditions like kidney disease, diabetes, other things. And so what you find is that women are dying of high-tech problems that require high-tech solutions. And you think about how we lowered infant mortality. One of the things that we did is we developed a triage system, of different levels of nurseries. We have level one, two, and three. And we transfer babies to level three nurseries if they're very sick because that those nurseries have specialized care. And that's dramatically improved neonatal mortality. We have nothing like that for mothers. And we should be putting together something like that for mothers. We should have more perinatologists, more maternity ICUs, because those are the women who are dying, and they're dying from lack of technology. So one of the things that I find very upsetting is that although we can argue whether um, childbirth has been medicalized too much, when it comes to the issue of maternal mortality, the women who are dying are dying because they lack access to that technology. And it's bizarre and, and, and very unfortunate to claim that we could reduce maternal mortality if we lowered the C-section rate or lowered the intervention rate because those things have, uh, are exactly the opposite of what is going on. And that's a phenomenon that I have referred to as, and others have referred to as medical colonialism in that we have been expropriating or activists have been expropriating the tragedies of underserved women to advocate for what privileged women want. So you find something like New York State uh, promoting doulas in response to the maternal mortality situation. Explain what a doula is. A doula is... is, um, it comes from the Greek word for slave, and it's basically a woman who helps uh, other well, women cope with childbirth, who supports them through childbirth, um, both by giving encouragement and also by, you know, uh, cold washcloth for their brow, um, cheerleading when they're pushing, things like that. Counting for their Lamaze breath. Right, right. Um, but the, the, the sad thing, the tragic thing, is that while doulas are very good and they can definitely improve the experience of childbirth, the women who are dying are not dying from bad experiences. They're dying from heart disease. They're dying from kidney disease. And it seems perverse to offer these women who are suffering a uh, amenity that privileged women would really enjoy. Yeah, um, let's. That's. I, I agree. Uh, let's let's move to um, the epidural issue. Um, a lot of people believe, uh, and I know you do not. Uh, so I want to hear your take. A lot of people believe that an epidural puts the baby at some risk, and therefore it's better to have a quote natural childbirth. Um, 
and that that pain relief is is just unnecessary. Well, uh, unnecessary for whom? <laughs> you know, I, I happen to think as a physician and as a human being that treating pain is the cornerstone of what any person should do for any other person. If somebody wants to be in pain, that's okay. But, um, you know, all pain relief has risks. Why is this the only form of pain relief where anybody talks about the risks? And why is it that those risks are magnified? So, for example, the risk of, the risk of a baby being harmed by an epidural is purely theoretical. The risk of a baby being harmed by attempted vaginal birth after cesarean is both very real and orders of magnitude greater than any theoretical risk of epidurals. So why are natural childbirth advocates promoting VBACs but demonizing epidurals? doesn't make sense if what they're really talking about is the risk. VBAC is a vaginal birth after cesarean. That's the Correct. acronym. Um, Correct. But, so what are, what are your thoughts on the risk? The risk is, is you said it was I mean, theoretical. Really you no say hypothetical risk. or there's theoretical. No, I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, I always find very interesting is that um, women obstetricians don't believe any of this stuff because it's nonsense. Women obstetricians have epidurals in droves. They have C-sections at much higher rate than average. They don't believe, and their experience tells them, that these things are not bad things. They're just choices. And one of the reasons that they've been portrayed as bad things is, sadly, because of the reemergence of midwifery, midwives can't give epidurals. Midwives can't do C-sections, and so they've demonized them. In the UK, where midwives um, can uh, uh, administer nitrous oxide, laughing gas, for pain relief in labor, they consider that perfectly compatible with a natural childbirth, even though that's a drug. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, let's talk about breastfeeding because that's another area where there's a lot of emotional, cultural uh, issues that interface with actual – science to the best of our knowledge, which is, of course, imperfect. Um, there's a lot of pressure on women, you suggest in your book, to breastfeed rather than to administer formula. Um, why is that a mistake? Um, well, I often say that the the key thing to know about breastfeeding is that the moralization of breastfeeding parallels the monetization of breastfeeding. It uh, sometimes it's an advantage to be old, like I am. Yeah. I'm I'm 60 years old, and I remember uh, a time before formula, uh, be, before breastfeeding was magical, when it was just a way that you could feed your baby, a good way, but it didn't have all these supposed benefits. And then came the profession of lactation consultants, which are good things. They're very helpful to women who are trying to breastfeed, but instead of concentrating on helping women who want to breastfeed to do so, they are constantly seeking to increase market share. They want every woman to breastfeed. And that's honestly none of their business, how another woman uses her body. If a woman wants to breastfeed, 
great. I mean, I breastfed my four children. I enjoyed it. They thrived. It was a great experience. But that doesn't make me the ideal that other women should aspire to. Other women have different preferences, uh, different life histories that may make them feel differently about breastfeeding. But we've crushed that under the notion that breastfeeding has such massive benefits that no good mother should avoid doing it. And theoretically, it's possible that breastfeeding has all sorts of massive benefits. Certainly, there were small studies that suggested it might. But we've already done the big study that shows that it doesn't have big benefits. You know, two entire, nearly entire generations of Americans were raised on formula. Nothing happened that was bad. And if you look at um, breastfeeding rates, they've gone up dramatically since the 1970s. They're used to, in 1973, I think we bottomed out with a breastfeeding initiation rate of 24%. Now over 80% of women are leaving the hospital claiming that they're going to exclusively breastfeed. And in that time, there's been absolutely no impact on the uh, infant mortality of term babies and no impact on major parameters of infant illness and hospitalization for term babies. The only um, proven benefit has been for premature babies who have immature digestive systems. So at this point, honestly, we're just lying to women. In order to get them to breastfeed, we tell them it has benefits that it doesn't have. And the benefits we're told are better immunity against disease, better nutrition, healthier, whatever. And right, but then you should be able to see it. Uh, it's not that it couldn't have those benefits, but if it did have those benefits, then the breastfeeding rates should um, at least be related in some way to infant mortality and infant morbidity, which is sickness. And, you know, look around the world. The countries with the highest breastfeeding rates have the highest infant mortality rates. And the countries with the lowest infant mortality rates have the lowest breastfeeding rates. But, so as, you, but as you would point out, and you do in the book, there are lots of other factors. And so those kind of crude comparisons don't, are not definitive. They're provocative. Um, It's not that they're not definitive. It just shows that people have been um, deceiving women. You know, don't tell women, if if you look at um, the Lancet uh, papers on breastfeeding or the World Health Organization, they say 823,000 lives could be saved each year if more women breastfed. Well, in the first place, those are not in... Um, industrialized countries. So why that should matter to American women uh, is an issue. And in the second place, it isn't even true because babies don't die of lack of breastfeeding. They die of prematurity. They die of congenital anomalies. They die of dirty water. But breastfeeding is not going to save that many lives. And it's wrong to keep insisting that it will. Yep. Well, in the in the poorer countries that don't have access to clean water, breastfeeding, if we a crude switch, just simply nothing else changes, but formulas use less and 
and breastfeeding is used more, that could save lives because of that water issue, but it wouldn't be the breastfeeding per se. It's that the water is the problem. Well, and not only that, um, it's all well and good to breastfeed your baby till two, and then the baby has to still drink the dirty water, and then the baby will die. So if we really want to save lives in those countries, we should help them with water purification. I agree with that. Uh, you mentioned a study, and you talk about it in the book, of siblings. Obviously, as you point out, many uh, studies that purported to show the benefits of breastfeeding were flawed because the sample of people who chose to breastfeed in the past was not a, a perfect match troll with the people Correct. who weren't breastfeeding. Classic problem in economics and, and epidemiology and elsewhere. Uh, but there was a study that was somewhat more um, uh, controlled, which is of siblings. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the, uh, the colon study was published in uh, 2014, and it was a very elegant study, and it looked at 10 years of data in New York State, and it looked at the difference between within families uh, between children who were bottle-fed and breastfed, and there was no difference. All the parameters that seemed to be different for um, if you looked as a group of all children who were breastfed compared to all children who were bottle-fed on, on 11 different um, measures like asthma and IQ and you name it, um, every single one of the advantages that supposedly accrued from breastfeeding disappeared. And not surprisingly, and, breastfeeding right. advocates have suggested that study is flawed. <laughs> uh, right, but you know, the, I, I, I think that the important thing here, we can get into the weeds with the scientific evidence, but the important thing is this is an issue of choice for women. This is not just about what is good for babies. And the fact of the matter is that the benefits of breastfeeding are so trivial that you can't even measure them. I mean, we can't find them in any large population. And if that's the case, why are we pressuring women to use their bodies in an approved way? Shouldn't it be up to women to weigh the risks and benefits? I mean, why do we have something like the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative, which goes into hospitals and pressures women to breastfeed? And that, to me, is completely unethical. Well, you talk women, about the you talk about the self interest of of uh, lactation consultants. You, know, you mentioned a minute ago, and the irony, of course, is that the original claim was that formula has been foisted on women by the profiteering of of multinational corporations, and now you're suggesting that that's being overwhelmed by the self-interest of licensed and trained uh, lactation experts. Well, the, for the fact of the matter is formula was not foisted on people by formula companies. Formula companies met the need for – women were already not breastfeeding. They were feeding their children um, – cow's milk and various other concoctions instead of breastfeeding, and those babies died at a massive rate. We, we found um, infant feeding bottles from ancient Egypt. There have always been women who can't or don't wish to breastfeed. Formula fills the need. Did formula companies do a terrible thing in Africa in the 1970s? 
Absolutely, they did. And, and formula companies should be demonized for that. But that doesn't mean we should demonize formula. And that doesn't mean that we should pressure women in 2019 to breastfeed to punish formula companies for what they did in 1970. Every woman should be able to make her own decision. You know, people, um, uh, lactation consultants talk a lot about the benefits of breastfeeding. Well, what about the benefits of trusting mothers to do what they think is best for their babies? What about the benefits of not pressuring them? I, I don't understand why that doesn't end up on our radar somewhere. Well, I just want to mention at one point, I think you you talk about the claim that a single bottle of formula is harmful to a baby's health. This just seems to go against just common sense. It reminds me of, I mean, I mentioned this before, but it's a tragic story, but I think it's informative of human nature. Um, Adele Davis, the nutrition advocate and expert, uh, died of cancer. And when she got cancer, she attributed it to a bag of potato chips she had eaten as a child or in her, in her youth. Right. And right. that's just, I mean, that's human nature to, to find things that allow us to keep our narratives intact. But the idea that one bottle of formula is going to lead to a, a disaster, but, but that is the claim. Is that correct? Well, yes. And, and it's part of a, a larger effort. Um, lactation professionals are well aware that the benefits that they predicted for breastfeeding have not come to pass. So now they're predicting ever more arcane benefits. And the latest thing is that uh, formula ruins the microbiome of the infant gut. And that formula somehow changes the genetics of babies, the epigenetics of babies. Those things are both unproven, but also their acknowledgments that the other benefits that they've been touting all this time have not come to pass. And of course, it's possible that, as you say, the rise in breastfeeding in the 70s and 80s and 90s and to today will lead to children who will live much longer. All the problems of the formula and breastfeed are going to show up in old age. It's conceivable. It's, I think it's unlikely. And with you, I think you want to kind of focus on the infant mor morbidity and mortality. But it's conceivable that these kind of benefits could be there. But as you point out, without any evidence, there's no real reason to think it's the case. Right. And in the meantime, we're just flattening women. We're just telling them this is what you have to do, and if you don't do it, you're a bad mother. And women are literally committing suicide over this, over these essentially non-existent benefits because they're being pressured. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've come to wonder about and animates all that I do now is why do good mothers feel so badly about themselves? And the reason is because there's a whole bunch of people whose profession is to make them feel badly about themselves. You know, make them feel badly if they don't breastfeed. Make them feel bad if they had a C-section. Make them feel bad if they had an epidural. How on earth is this helpful to babies, let alone to mothers? I don't see it. Well, there's another issue, which uh, it's, it came up in our um earlier episode with Emily Oster on uh, how to deal with pregnancy and what's the evidence of the right behaviors during pregnancy. And just let listeners know, 
expect to, I expect to have Emily on in the next few months on her new book, Crib Sheet. Good title. It's just about yeah. what we know about uh, the uh, child raising process once the birth has uh, happened. And one of the issues that came up in that conversation with Emily before is that you know, we're, there'd be issues like, should women have a glass of wine while they're pregnant? And should they drink caffeine? And one of the things that matters in the health of the baby is the mental well-being of the mother and driving uh, prospective moms or moms after childbirth is not the best thing. It has it comes with a cost. That's all I'll say as um, as an economist. It's um, and I, it's well, a, it, it more than comes with the cost. It suggests that what's going on here is not what we see on the surface. I mean, most people don't realize that like natural childbirth, both breastfeeding and the attachment parenting movement were started by people who were explicitly trying to force women back into the home. La Leche League began in the late 1950s, and it uh, came out of a traditionalist Catholic mothers group where the women uh, in this suburb were upset that some mothers of young children were going to work. And they reasoned that if they convince women to breastfeed, they'd have to stay home. And so the history of lactivism has always been about getting women to stay home. And uh, over the years, you what you told them had to change because our sensibilities have changed. Yeah. So it, it used to be, well, breastfeeding is good. You should stay home and do it. Now it's you better breastfeed or your child will be mentally defective and in a penitentiary. But it, again, it's an effort to manipulate women. And attachment parenting, um, which in its uh, most popular inception is uh, by Dr. Bob Sears. Bob Sears was the medical director, I mean, uh, Bill Sears. Bob Sears is his son, the anti-vaccination person. Um, Bill Sears was the medical director of La Leche League. And he and his wife uh, believed, and, and they wrote in their first book, which is something like The Christian Guide to Parenting and Childbirth, um, they said that attachment parenting was given to them by God. They prayed on it and they received it from God as the way that God wants the family to be ordered with the husband as the head and the wife solely occupied with caring for him and the children. And I don't think that you can really ignore that these things were created to control women and that they still are attempting to control women. That's a bad thing in my view. Well, I want to come to attachment parenting next, but before we do, I just, it's important to mention for people who have never um, fathered or mothered a child uh, that not every woman can breastfeed just on a physical basis to produce enough milk to sustain the health of the child. I think most people just assume that this is just a question of convenience. If you're working, it's hard to breastfeed. You have to pump milk and store it or bring your baby to work or get home for lunch, whatever. But this is not what we're talking about. That's it's relevant, but what we're talking well, about is the it, fact. It, right, but the reason they assume that, they don't assume it. They were told that by the lactation profession. If you read official lactation literature, it says that the uh, incidence of insufficient breast milk is rare, but it's not rare. It's common. Just like miscarriages are common because pregnancy isn't perfect, 
insufficient breast milk is common because breastfeeding isn't perfect. And yet there's no acknowledgement of that. And so that the women who were told that breastfeeding is natural and there's not going to be any problem so long as they were committed to it and loved their baby enough, when they find themselves with insufficient breast milk, they blame themselves. They consider themselves freaks. I mean, imagine if we told women when they had a miscarriage that it was their fault. There's enough grief that is that comes from having a miscarriage without blaming women for it. And what we've done with breastfeeding, we've we've said that women who are having problems, it's their fault. It's lack of insufficient it's lack of devotion and lack of concern and laziness. And honestly, I can't think of anything more cruel than that because yeah. it's not true. So let's talk about, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, let's talk about uh, attachment parenting. Um, and I want to mention that I want to set this up with, um, let's let you react to this. We had Sebastian Younger uh, on uh, late last year. And there were many interesting things that came out of his book, Tribe. But one of the themes of that book is that it's cruel to make small children sleep in their own room because we evolved, uh, of course, in probably in situations where parents and children uh, slept close to one another for, because there was a lot of physical danger through most of human history. So you wouldn't go put your kid out on a you know, 50, 20, 30 yards away, you keep them close because they would otherwise they get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. So uh, his claim is that, and I found this very poignant, So, I'm, and I know you're a skeptic on some of this, so I want you to react oh, to it. Yes. Hang on, so I'm just going to finish this example, though, because it's so juicy. Uh, his claim is that the attachment that children have for their teddy bear, their, their stuffed animal, is this uh, desperate attempt by a, a small human being to find the a source of of comfort uh, in a world where they've been shoved out of the the family bed. So the idea of that 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 kids should sleep in their own room because it's good for them, they'll get better sleep habits. He suggests is actually uh, not true, and in particular, he suggests that in most cultures of the world, the idea of of making your kids sleep in their own room would be seen as a sign of cruelty. So. Um, Talk about attachment parenting generally and then tell us well, why. I, 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 I want to address that because yeah. I think it's nonsense. It's nonsense on a number of different levels. First of all, the idea that there was one universal culture in prehistory and that all people did the same thing and parenting parented the same way is just completely bizarre. And, um, you know, if there was anything I learned from practicing medicine, it was that um, people in different parts of the world, because when you practice medicine in a city like Boston, where I am, you, you meet people from all over the world, that there are a zillion different ways to raise children, just like there are a zillion different ways to conduct marriages and a whole bunch of different ways to relate to um, your parent, you know, your your adult when you're an adult to relate to your parents, there's all sorts of different ways. And not, one is not better than the other. I saw people parent people from other cultures parent their children in ways that I would never parent who raised happy, healthy, well-adjusted people. And it seemed to me that the key 
in looking at all these different cultures was that children need to be loved and need to know that they're loved and that all the rest is just commentary. It's, yeah, so it's, sending them off to their own room is like saying, I don't love you. Well, that's and By the way, all my kids, most of my kids slept in their own room. They did in the morning sometimes crawl into bed with us, but we did put them in their own room. So I'm just, just to get that on the record. Well, I mean, I, uh, my husband and I had basically what you would call a family bed because um, we let anybody crawl in who wanted to. Uh, that worked well for some children. Um, for other children, they were disgusted that we took up too much room <laughs> and <laughs> went back to their own beds. Um, but, you know, that's another thing about this, that not only the idea that all ancient culture was homogeneous across the entire world and across, you know, 50,000 years of human prehistory. It's that all children need the same thing. That, um, you know, what's good for one child will be good for all ch children. And one of the great things about uh, having more than one child, and I don't know if you and your wife also felt this way, is that you learn that everything is not your fault. That children are born with their own personalities and that their own needs and that the challenge of parenting is meeting the need of the child in front of you, not some theoretical child and not some prehistoric child, but the actual child standing there who needs something specific from you. And that might be something very different from when, what his brother or sister needs from you. So you have four kids. We have four kids also. All of ours are turns out are the same. Uh, exactly the same personalities, needs. Um, actually, the only thing they really have in common is that they don't listen to econ talk with any regularity. So I can actually right. talk about it as much as I want. But right. uh, our kids were yeah, one of the one of the blessings of having uh, more than one child and even more than two is to the variety of of personality traits, skills, gifts shortcomings, challenges, handicaps. Right. It's it's an incredible um and I think they all came from the same parents, I'm pretty sure. Not a hundred percent, but of course right. can't be, but I'm pretty <laughs> confident uh that they're all have the shit drew from the same urn of genes, but it just comes out differently. Right. And so you know, this idea that there's some er child that, you know, we're all parenting is ridiculous. And I also um, encourage people to consider why is there natural mothering but no natural fathering? Why aren't people saying, you know, what children really need is for their fathers to go out and hunt big animals with spears? And uh, well, we've had some guests who hint at that as being a healthy thing. Right. I'm just going to leave that alone, but go ahead. Right. <laughs> but for example, you know, we one of the things that we do nowadays is have fathers in the delivery room when children are born. No, no indigenous or virtually no indigenous cultures have fathers involved in childbirth. They so. are women are banished to some. A hut or room or something far away from the men so they won't contaminate the men with the blood. And um, when they are healed, then they can come back. So why is it that we're not seeking to re-emulate that and banish women to birthing huts? 
and yet we're supposed to be, re, you know, seeking to emulate the family bed. I have to say, I think I think my favorite moment in your book is when uh, you talk about the husband who's there in the delivery room to support his wife, and uh, she's in terrible pain, and she demands an epidural. The husband says, uh, "Reminds me of a scene in Young Frankenstein." Which is, right. That's this is two uh, this is a couple episodes in the last few months with this where. Gene Welch says, no matter what I do, no matter how hard I beg, don't open that door. Well, similarly, this couple had decided in advance when they had their faculties fully about them that that they would not get an epidural. And they, again, the wrong pronoun, would have a natural childbirth. And then when confronted with the actual experience, um, and I should mention my wife had four natural childbirths. Very pleased with that. She is. um, It was her choice. Uh, But. Many women choose not to. And this woman, in the midst, in the throes of, of labor, decided she wanted an epidural. And her husband said, well, honey, you, you know, we decided when you had your, right. you were calm that this is not a good idea. So I'm, we shouldn't do this. And at some point, as this conversation continued, I think the quote is the, the, the mother turned to the doctor and speaking of the husband said, kill him. Yes. Uh, which uh, yes. a number of women have confessed to me that they have said things in the middle of labor that they regret. Uh, that might be one of them, might not be. I don't know. But but the idea of the husband being there is, is different. Yes, it's not common. Well, and, and that kind of incident really uh, encapsulates so much of what is wrong with these movements. I mean, where else in, you know, in higher breadth of human existence, would somebody ask you to decide whether or not you needed pain medication before you experienced the pain? And yet, that's what we tell women to do. And, you know, you talk about your wife had four natural childbirths. Well, I had four children, um, two with epidurals, two without. And so I can speak to the difference. And the difference was the pain. Yes. That (laughs) That was the difference. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That reminds me of of when we would go to uh, classes before our children were born, and they would teach uh, Lamaze to my wife and I. And and I, of course, was a participant because I was going to be her coach and help her with her breathing. And and you know, I she found a place during her births and deliveries to get through it. Uh, I don't know if Lamaze had anything to do with it at all, but I expressed skepticism beforehand. Because I said, you know, if you could really control pain by breathing, they'd teach it to soldiers. I mean, it's or, or other people. It's not a, the fact that it's only taught for childbirth suggests it probably doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. It's it a, absolutely doesn't work. <laughs> and it's it's um, frankly, I think it's encouraging women to torture themselves and praising them for doing it. I mean, if you if you're needle phobic and you're afraid of an epidural, fine, don't have an epidural. But don't tell me that this is empowering women. Why is it that women are only are the only ones empowered by pain and not men? One thing we didn't get to talk about, which I didn't want to miss, and I apologize, come back a little circle back onto this, is that you suggested this is not something I'm aware of that there is a black market in in your book. You mentioned there's a black market in breast milk. Is this true? Oh, absolutely. And how's that work? Um, well, what's the price? Do you know? Do you have a feel on the street? It's Well, there's also exchanges of breast milk. I mean, what has happened is that we have made women so panicked 
that if their children don't get breast milk, that they will somehow be harmed, that women are reaching out to other women, either uh, people that they know online uh, who will share breast milk with them or uh, a black market in breast milk. Um, it's First of all, when you pay, it's incredibly expensive. Um, there are milk banks, real milk banks, where the milk is pasteurized, um, in which uh, I think it's like $8 an ounce or more. I mean, it's extraordinarily expensive. Um, but when you when there's an a exchange over the internet, um, you know, disease can be passed in breast milk. HIV can be passed, the, the virus that causes AIDS is passed in breast milk. And also, when um, uh, people have looked, they've done some studies about they've bought breast milk off the internet. Most of it is uh, not breast milk. A lot of it is adulterated cow's milk. Is it illegal? Is it illegal to sell your breast milk? You know what? I I don't know. I don't know. But I, I do think that it shows you where we are as a culture where women are willing to spend a fortune to buy the bodily fluids of other women for fear that their children are being deprived of something, that's, a, you know, that I think tells us more about where we are uh, on the issue of breastfeeding than anything else. Because the fact is, breastfeeding is not a health issue. It's a lifestyle choice. I mean, I breastfed, my kids enjoyed it, I enjoyed it, I had no trouble doing it, but that doesn't change the fact that the health benefits are trivial. And we should stop torturing women by implying that if their children don't get breast milk, that they're ruined for life. You, uh, what I say to women when I talk to them is you will ruin your children and your children will tell you that you have ruined them, but it will not have anything to do <laughs> with birth or breastfeeding or anything like that. All the things that you're encouraged to worry about are entirely irrelevant. My guest today has been Amy Tutur. Amy, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you so much for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.